Turn in your Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 4 as we look at the temptation of the Lord Jesus this morning. Again, another uh, mostly familiar story to us, but so many things in here that I occasionally hear um, preached wrongly, taught wrongly, or some important items of this passage not stressed enough. And so join me in Matthew chapter 4. We'll be reading only verses 1 through 11. So these first three weeks, we've taken whole chunks or whole chapters at a time. uh, And through some chapters, we're going to be slowing down. Over the next couple of months, we'll be slowing way down as we move from chapter 4 into the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, So join me, if you will, Matthew 4. And if you would stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting forty days and forty nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, He said to him, All these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Let's pray together. Father, would you help us this morning? Some here who are facing great temptation. Some here who may not even realize that temptation is crouching at the door. That sin is waiting, seeking to devour. Some here this morning who are fighting temptation and just need more help and assurance from your word. And with the grace of your spirit. Or some here this morning who are so young they cannot really even understand what temptation is going to mean for the rest of their lives. And some here who perhaps, who've been blessed with so many years that they feel as if temptation is behind them. Wherever we may find ourselves this morning, Lord, would we honor and glorify you by learning how we can fight temptation, how we can be victorious over it and conquer sin because we have a victorious King and Lord 
And so we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Every once in a while, I like to just look up famous quotes. Famous quotes about specific subjects, different subjects. So this week, I just looked up famous quotes about temptation. Here were some of my favorite. Oscar Wilde. I can resist anything except temptation. Mark Twain. There is a charm about the forbidden that makes it unspeakably desirable. Mae West. Between two evils, I always pick the one I've never tried before. And author Jane Seabrook. Lead me not into temptation. I can find the way myself. We can chuckle. But those are really serious sayings. Oscar Wilde, a flamboyant and sin-filled author. I can resist anything except temptation. Mark Twain writing from the perspective of a character that's being lured by temptation and evil. There's a charm about the forbidden that makes it unspeakably desirable. May West, between two evils, I pick the one I've never tried before. And Jane Seabrook, lead me not into temptation, I can find the way myself. That's nothing to laugh about. When we even speak the word temptation on a Sunday morning from the pulpit as we gather with other believers, when we know we're going to be looking at a text like the temptation of Jesus, I think that in our day, we immediately begin to denote and connote something in our minds that is very illicit, very dangerous. Something very forbidden, but enticing, that will have grave negative consequences or will bring great shame or guilt to an individual or the type of sin that would publicly ruin our lives or our marriage or our family or our job. That's typically the way that we think about temptation, as only being the grandest, most evil, most illicit, luring kind of sin. And have you realized if your life has been anything like mine that in most of the sermons that I've heard about temptation, most of the sermon deals with temptations that will come for men. And for young people. And rarely do we ever stress the temptations that will come to women. Or to the elderly. We can read a passage like the temptation of Jesus and just immediately think, I need help from this text in dealing with the one habitual sin that I can't seem to conquer. 
and I'm going to learn it from the text this morning, and I'm going to be able to be victorious over it and conquer it because of my Lord and Savior Jesus. And if that's you here this morning, my hope and my prayer is that that will be answered in the course of this sermon. Oh, but friends, there, there are some of you who don't even realize that temptation is there. You do not even realize that you're falling into temptation. You do not even realize that despite your age, there are daily temptations that can plague your mind and your soul and cause you to slip. And once you begin slipping, the slipping becomes all the more easy. This is a glorious passage of scripture. On the heels of his baptism, the scripture records that the spirit of God leads Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. That, that one phrase in the very first verse should cause us to just pause and say, wait a second, what's going on here? The spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness so that he may be tempted. That's a hard statement for us to understand. Mark's gospel, as I mentioned last week, puts it even more emphatically or forcefully. The Greek word ekbalo, which means the spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness. The spirit compelled Jesus. Some translations read the spirit cast Jesus into the wilderness so that he may be tempted. And once he gets into the wilderness... He begins fasting 40 days, 40 nights, and he is in what some have translated wilderness to mean the place of devastation and desolation. Remember, we're probably east of Jerusalem in the wilderness desert beyond the Jordan River, perhaps even south of the Dead Sea. Don't exactly know where Jesus would have been at this time. But we know that he will come out of the wilderness and come back into Jerusalem. It was a barren, wasteland, dry, arid, lonely, rocky, dangerous place. And he's there for 40 days and 40 nights. And as we talked about it as a staff this week in what Pastor Taylor commented, one of the most uh, captain obvious understatement parts of all of the Bible... Matthew records for us, and Jesus was hungry. Yes, he was hungry. In these first couple of phrases in Matthew 4, we see the humanity of Jesus. We know that Jesus was there by himself. We know that Jesus was hungry. We know that Jesus was not eating. We know that Jesus was a physical man who needed physical nourishment and he didn't have it. He had nothing sustaining him except the Lord. And it is in this situation that the temptation comes. There's three things that I want you to see from the text this morning. The first is I want us to understand and recognize temptation's true source. Recognize temptation's true source. Yes, it is the spirit that drives Jesus into the wilderness. It's the spirit that leads Jesus into the wilderness. It's the spirit that's there with Jesus. It's the spirit 
that by the power of God brings angels at the end of this temptation to minister to Jesus. But it is not the Spirit who tempts. We are told throughout the Bible that God may test our faith. The book of James is very clear about that. That God will bring trials, that he will bring tribulations, that he will bring tests into our lives, that God, through the filtering sovereign hands of his good pleasure, will allow things to come into your life that will test your faith. Because we know the testing of your faith produces endurance and endurance hope. So that we may be able to stand. We know that God brings judgment because of our sin. God can bring consequences. God can bring devastating realities into our lives because of our sin. God can cause great tribulation, spiritual, and he can allow or cause great physical affliction to come our way. But the scriptures are clear, James 1.13, that God does not tempt. And so we have to understand the source. And if I tested you today, you would say, I think, it's the enemy who tempts. It's Satan who tempts. But do you get that? Do you really and truly get that? It is the accuser. It is the deceiver. It is the blasphemer. It is the God of this world, little g. It is the prince of the power of the air. It is the spirit that is at work now in the sons of disobedience. It is Beelzebub. It is the one that rules over the lake of fire. It is that great enemy, that great dragon. It is the slanderer. It is Satan himself that is at the very source of the temptations that come to Jesus and the temptations that will inevitably work their way into your lives. He is a liar. And it's important for us to understand before we go any further, Satan's strong power. Satan's and sin's mighty, evil sway. Satan comes to Jesus and he says, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Three episodes that I want you to understand this morning. Three episodes. You've probably heard him preached on a hundred times. The first, he comes and he tempts the Lord Jesus to turn stones into bread. Why? Jesus was hungry. The second episode, he tempts Jesus as he takes him to the pinnacle of the temple and says, throw yourself down. Surely the angels will take care of you. The third episode, he takes him to a high mountain. He shows him all the kingdoms of the world. And he says, these will be yours and all their glory if you will just bow and worship me. Three temptations that come from Satan himself. It's important for us to recognize temptation's source. 
It's important for us to understand that in our own lives, the verse that describes temptation and how God is not a tempter in James chapter 1, verse 13, the very next verse says that the, really the precise way that Satan tempts us in this life is by using our own sinful desires. You may not know that there is a, a strange type of snapping turtle that has at the end of its tongue an odd little pink-like appendage that especially when it is submersed in the water can lay very still, motionless, legs tucked inside its shell, head barely out, and it waves its tongue back and forth. And this pink appendage looks like a worm swimming in the water. And so the fish come by and get very close to it and begin to nibble. And then the turtle eats the fish. The language that's used in James chapter 1 is that kind of language. It's, it's almost fishing language. We are lured away when we are enticed by our own desires, by our own lusts. Satan is a master of knowing how to get to us. And he is a master of knowing that the way that he can get to you specifically is very different from the way that he can get to you. And the way that he can get to you. And the way that he can get to you. And he masterfully works all of his deception so that he is at one time simultaneously tempting each and every one of us as only the God of this world could do. But his tactics are nothing new. You've heard me say countless times that the same lies that he spews today are the same lies that he's been spewing since the very beginning of time. Since the very first fall in the garden when he came to Adam and when he came to Eve and he speaks to the woman and he says, did God really say? And I've said time and time again, if we would understand Genesis chapter 3 and we would understand what the enemy is doing, causing the people of God in that moment to doubt his goodness and to doubt his word and to doubt if he really did say something then they would have been able to, in that moment, crush the head of the serpent rather than be passive and take and eat and succumb to their own desires. That's what the enemy does, right? God didn't say that. I mean, look. Look at how good this looks. And think of what the outcome will be. One of the other quotes that I saw in Temptation this week said this, it is not that in the moment we should think of all that Satan offers to us. It is that we should think of all that we will lose if we give in to his temptation. We have to understand the source of temptation. But friends, I want to mention just one more thing here that I think we so often miss. Not only is there within every person a sin-filled flesh that can be led away and lured by Satan. But the Bible even says in Matthew chapter 18, Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it's necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. 
And I think implied throughout that whole passage is not just that it's the enemy, but that the enemy can use you to become a tempter in someone else's life. I don't often hear that talked about in the church. Of course it's Satan at work. Of course it's the deceiver. Of course it's the enemy. Of course he's using and crafting our desires and presenting them in an illicit way so that we would like to gravitate to them and do what will be most pleasurable to us and not be honoring to the Lord. But have you ever thought about the fact that the enemy can lead you to become a tempter in the life of someone else? Woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. We have to recognize temptation's source. Secondly, we have to be able to recognize temptation's strongest opponent. Temptation's strongest opponent. How do we face temptation? How do we fight? And this is where the sermon on Matthew chapter 4 always centers every time you've ever heard it and often can go awry if the preacher or the careful student of God's word uh, isn't slow and methodical. Because the answer to that is, how does Jesus fight temptation? And everyone says, the word of God. He uses scripture. And that's right. But we so often miss that so did Satan. You ever catch that? I don't know how many times I've heard Matthew chapter 4 preached. And, and the, 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 the central key point of almost all of those sermons is you got to know your Bible. You got to know your Bible. You got to memorize your Bible. You got to meditate on the Bible. You got to read the Bible cover to cover. Hide, your, hide his word in your heart that you may not sin against him. That's what Jesus did. Jesus fought with the sword of the spirit. And all of that is right. And all of that is true. And all of that is good. But after the first temptation, when Satan comes and says, uh, if you, if you, will just listen to me if you, who are the Son of God, will command these stones to become loaves of bread. And Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 8, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. Then what is Satan's next tactic? He takes him to the temple and he says, Ha! Two can play at that game. And what does he do? He quotes scripture. (laughs) you ever catch that? He quotes from Psalm 91. He takes him to the pinnacle of the temple and he says two different verses. He will command his angels concerning you and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. I've heard so many pastors say if we would just learn three little words out of this sermon then we would be able to face any temptation that the enemy ever brings our way. If you would just learn the words, it is written. The only problem with that is that Satan quotes what is written. So while that is right, and while I understand the heart behind that, and while I think that's good advice, there has to be something that's added to it. There's an addendum to that. You have to be able in your life to say, it is written, and then rightly interpret it. You can't just quote the Bible. Satan knows the Bible better than you do. Satan can quote the Bible better than you do. And Satan is, in this world and in this day, 
throughout Christendom causing Christians to believe all kinds of things that are not acceptable and do not bring glory to God, all the while quoting Scripture. So if you're going to quote Scripture, you better know how to quote it. You better know how to use it. You better know how to apply it and how to interpret it, how to be a student of God's Word that diligently prepares and shows themselves as a workman, not one who will be ashamed. Yes, the strongest opponent to temptation is the Word of God, by the Spirit of God, applied through prayerful mediation to God. But it's not just that if we would know our Bibles a little more, that we would be able to face temptation. The first thing that Jesus does, he quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, man shall not live by bread alone. Then after the second temptation, he quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16. You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Sorry, that's the third quote. The second quote is from uh, Deuteronomy 6.16. The third is from Deuteronomy 6.13. So when Jesus quotes, he quotes from the, the very book of the Bible that we would all turn to when we would be faced with temptation, right? You face temptation tomorrow, the first place your mind and heart is going to go is to the book of Deuteronomy. Why does Jesus quote from Deuteronomy 6 and from Deuteronomy 8? Because it's in those texts. That the people of God in the Old Testament are being given the law of God. And they're being told how to apply the law of God. And they're being promised what will happen to them if they, if they listen to God's word. They will receive blessing. That they will not be in the wilderness. And so Jesus takes that context and he takes those verses and he applies it right back to Satan. And he's able to overcome the temptation that the enemy brings him. Listen, friends, there's all kinds of places in the Bible that you could turn. You could turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 that you should flee from sexual immorality. You can turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6 that you should know how to deal with the desire to be rich. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. You want to know how to deal with covetousness and a desire for materialism and a reliance upon uh, personal wealth rather than reliance upon the Spirit of God, then you better know 1 Timothy chapter 6 really well, inside and out, backwards and forwards. And, and you've heard it said countless times, it's not simply money, right? That's the root of all evil. It is the love of money. But it does, doesn't simply say that. He says that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. You can turn to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 29. If you're one who's prone to call someone else and say, I need you to pray about something with me, but your guise of prayer request really is just giving you the license to gossip and to backbite or to grumble or complain, then you need to be familiar with Ephesians chapter 4. All of those things are temptations that come from the enemy, the deceiver, the accuser, the liar, the slanderer who takes your own lusts and your own desires and presents them in front of you and tries to lure you away. And we need to be acquainted with the Bible. We need to be acquainted with Scripture so that we can apply it more rightly in our lives each and every day. Third and finally, we not only have to recognize temptation's source and recognize temptation's strongest opponent, but we have to recognize temptation's 
complete defeat. Recognize temptation's complete defeat. When we step back from God's word, I won't even call it a a danger, but you hear me talk all the time about reading the Bible slowly. One of the problems, uh, one of the potential pitfalls in expositional verse-by-verse slow preaching is that we can often miss what's happening in the large panorama of God's word. If we spend so much time focused on one little word or one little verse, but we're not reading what came before it or what came after it in either the passage or the paragraph or the preceding chapter or this section of the book, then we'll miss what's happening, especially in historical narrative in the Old Testament, especially in the Gospels as we're reading the life of Christ. And so we can take the temptation of Jesus and we can isolate it out and we can try to make good application about how it's the spirit that's bringing the the temptation and we need to fight Satan by the power of the spirit using the word of God. But when we miss where Matthew has placed this contextually and why and how he's using this to once again establish Jesus as the true king, then we'll miss the biggest point of the whole text. We're on the heels of Jesus' baptism. We're coming up out of the water. The heavens open and the Father says, this is my beloved Son. Matthew has spent a chapter detailing out the genealogy of the king and the royal ancestry. He has talked about wise men coming and bowing down. He has talked about Herod killing all the babies to try to to eliminate the king. He's now talked about the baptism of Jesus in fulfillment of prophecy coming to John the Baptist. And all of this is swinging us right here into the middle of the wilderness where Jesus is driven out by the Spirit and he's about to begin his public ministry so that when he walks back into Jerusalem and begins preaching and teaching and healing, he is walking back in as the validated, victorious, conquering king. Matthew is setting this passage up to help us understand that there is cosmic warfare happening in the wilderness. There is two kingdoms warring with one another. Before the head of the serpent is finally crushed at the cross and the empty tomb of the Lord Jesus. Here we have King Jesus taking shots at the enemy in the wilderness. The first Adam fell in the garden. The last Adam comes out of a barren wilderness victorious. Jesus could have called 10,000 angels that day, just as he could have on Calvary, Matthew 27, Mark 15, Luke 23. He could have called 10,000 angels to come and help him. But Jesus is, by his victory, proving to us that he's the true and better Israel. Israel had the word of God, and their failure led them to wander in the wilderness They continued to be tested in the wilderness and they failed. Jesus goes into the wilderness and he comes 
out victorious, unscathed. This is, this is a remarkable passage of Scripture. This should do nothing but take your Christology and the glory that you see in Jesus to the next level. There's four things that I want to try to help you think through as we think about this passage of Scripture and how we can deal with temptation in our own lives today. Four words that will begin with F so that maybe you can remember them. The first, follow. How will we deal with temptation in this life? Follow. And by follow, I mean follow the lives of godly believers. Follow the pattern that's been set before you. Follow the examples that have been given to us in the Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, this entire passage deals with the people of God and how they were tested in the Old Testament. And then the Bible says these things were given to us as our example. And then it drives to what is, what is, I think, one of the greatest promises in the New Testament and one of the passages that is most memorized in dealing with temptation, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape so that you may be able to endure it. Now, that is following on the heels of Paul using to the church at Corinth examples from the Old Testament telling them, follow what's been laid down in front of you. Follow the examples that God has given you. And when you face what you think is the kind of grueling, unmitigated, incomparable temptation that no one else in this life has ever known and no one else who's ever lived has ever experienced, then just be reminded, you ain't the first. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. Friend, whatever you're dealing with today, you are not facing anything that countless thousands of other believers have not faced before you. Oh, it may look different in your life. But the temptation is common. And God is faithful. God is faithful. If you will follow the examples. Now, there's lots of examples that you shouldn't follow, right? Don't follow the example of David when he's on the rooftop. Don't follow the example of Jacob when he deceives out of the birthright. Follow the examples of those who stayed so close to God and followed so hard after God that when temptation came, they were able to, to overcome it. The second word, flee. Flee. Sometimes we just need to flee. As simple as that. Temptation is going to come and you just need to flee. Temptation is going to come most often when you're alone and so you need to learn how to not be alone. 
And if you have to be alone, then you need to learn how to flee from temptation when you are alone. Temptation so often comes when we are physically, spiritually, financially, materially weak, lonely, distressed, afflicted. That's often when we are the weakest and when the enemy will come. And sometimes the only thing that we as believers need to do is flee. It's the example of Joseph in Potiphar's house, right? Leave your garment in the hand of Potiphar's wife. No matter how humiliating or naked you may have to be running away from temptation, flee. Get out of there. Don't linger. Don't allow temptation to take root. Don't allow sin to take root. That passage in James says we're lured away and enticed by our own lust. And sin, when it is conceived, gives birth to death. Don't let that happen. Flee. That's why we have an expression. Not simply because of sin, but because of agriculture. Rooting it out. You, you, you can only get rid of something if you're killing the roots. If you're getting rid of the roots. Flee. 1 Corinthians 6.18, I already quoted earlier, flee, flee, especially as it relates to great temptation, illicit sexual immorality, large temptations that may come your way. Flee, no matter what your age, no matter your phase of life, no matter whether you're a man or whether you're a woman, the temptations are going to come to you. Flee. Third, fight. Sometimes you can't flee for whatever reason, and so you have to learn how to fight. Ephesians 6 says, put on the full armor of God because we are at war there are, there are those in this life I've found in a Christian discipleship and especially in Christian counseling that often exist uh, on the end of the pendulum as it swings the first is on the end that they say they don't really believe in spiritual warfare it's not all that serious it's no big deal life's just to be lived uh, go to church Read the Bible, you'll be fine. The other are those that live on the complete other end of the spectrum where they think everything is spiritual warfare. Light turns red, you're late for work, demons did it. Right? It's all spiritual warfare. No, you're just impatient. Somebody cuts you off in traffic. Like, that's spiritual warfare. There is the enemy controlling that car to get in my way today. No, the enemy is using your own anger to lead you into temptation. Not everything is demonic spiritual warfare. But friends, we certainly don't want to be on the other end of the spectrum where nothing is spiritual warfare. The Bible's clear about the fact that this is a fight in this life. That you better have the armor that you better be leading your life with the only offensive weapon that's given in the warfare and the armor that you're given the sword of the spirit right you've heard that message before helmet breastplate belt shoes only one offensive weapon to fight the enemy with the word of god the sword of the Spirit. Another passage of Scripture that I would remind you of in the Gospels, several different texts, where Jesus makes it very clear, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. 
If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. This is Jesus using hyperbole. This is one of those places where we have to learn how to interpret the Bible rightly and apply it rightly. Jesus isn't literally saying, dig your eye out. He's not literally saying, cut your hand off. What he's saying is, you take whatever extreme measures are necessary so that you do not sin. You fight. You take it serious. And fourth and finally, fix. Fix your eyes on Jesus. This is a part that I think is so often overlooked. We talk about fleeing. We talk about fighting. Maybe even you've heard the sermon about following examples of those that have gone before you. But do you fix your eyes on Jesus? When Hebrews 12 says that we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, so we should run the race that is set before us with endurance, laying aside the sin and the snares that so easily entangle us, and fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. Do you do that in your life? You fix your eyes on Christ? So that you can run? You keep your eyes on Christ so that you can run? Like all of these things have to go together. You can't flee from immorality. You can't flee from whatever temptation that's coming to you if you do not have your eye on the one to whom you should be running while you flee. And if you do not have the sword of the Spirit flailing about and fighting as you flee. And if you're not considering the lives and example of those that have gone before you and following their lead as you flee, as you fight, as you fix your eyes on Christ. That's the only way to deal with sin. And I, I just think most sermons probably miss this point. When sin and temptation comes, when you fix your eyes on the Lord Jesus, you can overcome temptation when you realize and recall the fact that you have been joined into a one flesh union through the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. When you look at the finished work of the cross, then you can understand that in the moment in which you are succumbing to temptation and sinning, you are saying something about the cross when you give in to temptation so easily. You are saying and pronouncing with your life and declaring to the world that the cross must have some sort of deficiency, that Jesus must not be enough. But if you look to the cross and fix your eyes on Jesus and trust in him because he has overcome and accomplished victory for you and you know that you're united to him, then you will remember and recall that you are united to the one who is the victorious cosmic ruling and reigning king. And so you have power to overcome temptation. I'll leave you with one more quote about temptation. Jesus said, watch and pray. He says it to his disciples in the garden. As Jesus goes off just a little way and prays to his father and he told them, Spirit is willing, flesh is weak. Watch and pray so that you may not enter into temptation. And when he comes back multiple times, he finds them sleeping. But though the first Adam fell in the garden, and though his followers 
couldn't stay awake and be watchful in the garden? Jesus is victorious in the wilderness and in the garden and is arrested, put on a cross, executed, and then rises victorious so that if you will watch and pray, keep your eyes on him, he will not find you sleeping. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you this morning and our hope is that we would look to you, our great and sovereign king, and that you would be sweet and kind to us as we try to fight temptation. Would you help us to that end? For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Safely to the golden.
Magnify yourself in us. Remind us that ours are the keys to Zion City, that we'll walk forever with you because we found the treasure of our heart. You have brought Christ to us, and Christ is mine forevermore. Lord, as we think about the temptations of this life and of this world, I pray that you would help us leave today uh, on a sure and strong and steady footing, clinging to the rock the one who is our king. For we pray these things in Jesus' name.